On a regular here, can I just say we, we really love having you here uh, and we believe that you're important and that we would love to get to know you and uh, to see what life is like for you and um, see how we can be uh, you know, coming alongside you in, in your journey. Everyone's on a, their own journey of, of faith uh, and coming to know God. And so tonight we are going to continue, we're going to dive in to the book of Acts. So if you've got a Bible with you, open to Acts chapter 6. Isn't that exciting? A new chapter of Acts. We're at the start of chapter 6, and I love this part of the story of the book of Acts, because the church is kind of uh, like fizzing away. It's, it's sort of, it's, the temperature is rising, things are getting sort of so intense that they're starting to sort of boil over. And to me, I get, I get the image of like a soft drink bottle that you've shaken up too much, there's so much pressure going on inside that either the whole thing is going to bust open or the lid's going to fly off, but either way, things are going to start coming out. And we've got this, this part of the, the book of the story of Acts in the beginning of the church where things are starting to fizz out, where things are getting even, you know, maybe a little bit dangerous or maybe even a little bit volatile. It's, it's like the presence of God is coming in such measure that the container of the church and even of the city of Jerusalem is not enough to keep under wraps what is actually happening. And so you've got all of these crazy things starting to fizz through the surface. You've got the, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, that's wild. You've got Peter walking around and his shadow is healing people. That's nuts. You've got the apostles who somehow almost have this kind of like superhero status, not, not among the Christians, but among the, the non-Christians, are sort of looking at them like, who are these guys? And what, what do they mean? What do they stand for? You've got the incredible opposition of the, the Jewish leaders, which is you know, basically the powers that be in, in first century Jerusalem. You've got the rest of the Christians are too scared to even appear in public with the apostles at Solomon's portico because of this opposition that's coming. And yet somehow through all of that, the message of the gospel is attracting more and more people to it. And one of the things that we see tonight is that the people are coming to faith because not because it's, it's the most attractive thing or because they know that it's safe or because they believe that it just fits well with their ideologies. It's because they recognize that, hang on a second, there is a winning team and I'm on the losing team and I need to get with that. And it's not so much a choice, a weighing up of two equal things. It's more like, actually, I just need to do it. I just need to be obedient and to get to that point. And so we have this escalating narrative of the book of Acts where you know, they're, they're discovering all these awesome things like, wow, the Holy Spirit is, is doing this incredible stuff and the message of the gospel is so awesome and we're seeing it everywhere throughout the Old Testament scriptures. And then they get arrested and uh, each time the, the whole narrative escalates. They get brought before the Sanhedrin again. They get questioned about what they're doing again. They respond with the same thing. You killed Jesus. God raised him from the dead. We're witnesses to this. Repent and believe in the gospel. Again, there's the Sanhedrin, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they tell them not to preach in that name again. And you have this constantly rising narrative, everything sort of starting to get out of hand, and we are at bursting point at the moment. But you know, at this point in time, the scales are starting to tip. 
Because you've got in Jerusalem, the primary power there was these Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. For the last 150 years or so in that environment, they had been building up essentially a power base to be the people of influence, to be the important people. And so they would walk around dressed in robes that showed their importance. They were well kept. They were educated. They were wealthy. They were influential. People wanted to know what they were doing. People wanted their opinion on what they thought that they should be doing. These were important people in that society. And so they were like the big boys in town. The Sanhedrin was, if you were to walk into the schoolyard, they are the guy who owns the place. And if somebody was to, was to come and start you know, standing on their turf, they would you know, flex a bit of muscle and, and bounce them off a bit and, and try to say, you know, this is my area. And so these little disciples, who are all you know, fishermen and tax collectors and, and various much lower class people, not as important in, in Jerusalem and Judaism in that point in time, start encroaching on their turf. And it's, I, I think of it like a, like a superhero movie, where the guy is a, in high school, of course, because you know, superheroes start in high school. And they develop these superpowers, and then they still get bullied by all the bullies. And at the start of the movie, you know, the bully is this big, tough guy. But then as these sort of superpowers start to show themselves, the scales tip in the other direction. And then the bully realizes actually how small they are. And this is exactly what is happening in the book of Acts. Because the Sanhedrin has been this big boy in town the whole time, and they, they're trying to do the same thing, to stop these disciples from preaching the word of God. And time and time again, they just keep coming back. Moreover, there is supernatural stuff happening that is incredible, that is showing that actually what these disciples have is much bigger than what the Sanhedrin has. And then you get to these incredible words of the teacher of the law, Gamaliel. And I've been thinking about this for weeks, and I cannot get over the words that Gamaliel has said. And I'm struggling to think of another person in Scripture who is not a Christian, it doesn't become a Christian that we know of, who has said words quite as profound as him. Because the Sanhedrin has worked themselves up to such a level of rage that they are ready to kill these apostles. They've threatened them, they've done all that they can, and now they're just so angry that they are ready to kill them. And Gamaliel, with an incredible sense of insight and sobriety about his thought, as not to mention good theology, says, pause, hold on, kicks the disciples out, and he says, you need to think about what you're doing because a couple of people have gathered crowds around them and started movements and they've stirred up trouble, but they all died and everything fizzed out. We believe in God, don't we? Because if this thing is from man, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop it. And those words have been so profound because Gamaliel in that statement is making one of the most provable and credible arguments about the message of the gospel that there has ever been. Because he says to these other Jewish leaders, he says, you can kill these apostles, these disciples, and you're not gonna stop the message. Even though you oppose them publicly, even though you kick them out of your synagogues, even though you try and refute what they're saying, even though you cover your ears and you stop listening, still, this message is going to go forward. You might try and discredit their arguments. You might try and tamper with any evidence they might have. You might pass them on to the Roman authorities. 
You might oppose them in any possible way that you can. Still, this message is going to grow. Governments might oppose them and throw them to the lions simply because they confess the name of Jesus Christ. People might look at them and call them all sorts of things like outdated, bigots, uh, insensitive, weird, and it doesn't matter because if God is behind this thing, it will not fail. And we gather here tonight as a small number of the 2.2 billion, yes, billion people in the world who follow and serve a carpenter's son from the backwaters of Galilee. Because there is one king in heaven and his message started 2,000 years ago and despite being constantly opposed at every turn has grown into what it is today. I don't know if Gamaliel understood what he said at that point in time. And you know what? There's actually a later bit in this passage that I think actually is set up by Gamaliel's words. And he's, everybody is on a, a journey of faith. And there comes a moment when, you know, in your life it feels like the scales tip into one way and that belief is actually the right thing to do, that the belief is the only sensible thing to do. And I would argue that it is actually a step further than that and we'll see later in our passage what that looks like. But conversion is often actually the culmination of a beautiful story that God has been writing through someone's life for years and years. And it's finally the point where it's, it's not so much, uh, okay, well, I'm convinced. It's more of a actually I give up, I give in. I cannot go on opposing this in my own heart anymore because the, the evidence and my understanding and experience of God is so significant and so profound that it would actually be lying to myself to, consider, to, to persist in the old way of life because I know that the message of Jesus Christ is true. And there is a beautiful conversion story in this passage that you might not see when you first read it, but we're going to get there. Before we do, we have some other things to, to consider to deal with in this, in this passage. So Acts chapter six from verse one. It says, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. I mean, can you believe it? A complaint in the church. I know, nobody complains, certainly not in this church. No complaints whatsoever. But a complaint arose, and let me just explain the context of some of these terms. So the Hellenists is a word for Greek-speaking Jews. Uh, Hellas is the Greek word for Greece. And so a Hellenist is somebody who speaks Greek. And so what this is, is a group of Jews who essentially lived outside the area of Jerusalem and, and wider Judea, and the, the primary language that they spoke was Greek. It also meant that they were culturally Greek-leaning compared to the other uh, Jews. And so that's basically the group that's kind of like, get with the times, come on, this is the world that we live in, we've got to adapt and, and move on. And they were happy to be faithful to their roots, but to do it in a, in a way that's contextually appropriate. And then the, the Hebrews is going to be the, the group of Jews who live in Jerusalem, in Judea, and the primary language that they spoke would have been the, the Hebrew dialect of the first century, which by the way, I'm, I'm pretty sure was Aramaic. They probably would have been familiar with classical Hebrew, 
but they would have spoken Aramaic and Greek. And if you want to have that academic conversation later, I'd, I'd love to. Trev's already um, writing in his diary. Uh, and so these are kind of the, the fundamentalist uh, group that's like, no, we've, we've got to do these things because that's the way that they've always been done. The traditionalists, you know, we've, we've got to stick according to these roots. Now, I will just say that in the passage, there's no uh, leaning one way or the other to say this group is right and this group is wrong. That, that's, that's not in there at all. And what I think that that says is that actually those two groups are going to continually exist in the church. There are always going to be those who want to lean towards the traditional, this is the way that we've done it, therefore it's the way that we do it. There are always going to be the people who are like, well, let's get with the times, let's you know, reinvigorate, revamp what we do, you know, keep what's good and, and move on. And I think that eventually they just get old enough to become the, uh, the fundamentalists. Uh, that was the wrong word, I apologise. <laughs> I will say that later in the passage, they choose seven people to appoint over this problem, and every single one of them has a Greek name. I'll leave that one there for you to, uh, to consider what that actually means. We're not going to go into it. But that's the complaint. The, the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, are saying that our widows are being neglected in the daily distribution of food, uh, and this needs to uh, be solved. And by the way, in the language, I, I looked through it, and there's no hint that there's anything deliberate going on. It's literally just a, an, an administrative oversight. And you know what? Actually, it is a church growth problem. Did you see that? Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the reason that this problem occurred was because the church was growing. And this was a pastoral and a practical need that became a gap because the vessel of the church was not enough to contain what was going on. And so this is actually a, a moment in time, a point where the church has to adapt and sort of reinvent itself in order to keep up with what the gospel message is doing. We saw a couple of weeks ago that uh, the, the message is actually outrunning the messengers. People outside of Jerusalem are starting to come in because they, the, the message is going beyond where the messengers actually are. And so the church is essentially trying to keep up with the gospel message. And can I say that I would love for that to happen here, for us to be seeing how the gospel is going before us and then to be, for, for our problems to be ones of struggling to keep up with the gospel. Wouldn't that be amazing? And by the way, Catherine's going to appreciate me saying this, but mainly music is an area where that need is absolutely there. The gospel is outrunning us because we are getting so many mums and their kids coming into this space, right? They're coming from outside Jerusalem into here, and we need the messengers there to bear witness to Jesus. So that, that could turn into an incredible outreach for us. So if you're available on a Thursday, Catherine would absolutely love to, to talk to you about that. Now, where were we? This is a, a church growth problem. Now, it might surprise you to know that there are a lot of declining churches around in our country. And even in our movement, there are more churches closing their doors than there are churches opening them. And that's maybe not as, as clear or as obvious to us here as, as a group who gather in somewhere. You know, we love being here on a Sunday and uh, there's a lot of life and we, we feel filled from uh, what goes on here. But there are churches that are dying out there. And overall, the influence and the areas that you know, God's message is in is getting lower rather than higher. And we don't celebrate that at all. We mourn with the fact that 
there are, there's less and less opportunity out there. Because there might be a, a banner over this place as Kenmore Church and our hearts are uh, our mission, hearts and mission, filling hearts, filling mission. That's, that's what we do. But there's a much bigger banner over that that says kingdom of God. And so we celebrate when the kingdom of God is winning, no matter where it is, but we also mourn when the kingdom of God is not having the witness that it should in moments like that. But we as a church will not be that church. We will not be a declining church. This church was started uh, four years ago with a particular mandate to grow and to influence and grow the rest of the movement uh, of churches of Christ. Much bigger than that is obviously contributing to the kingdom of God. And so we will not become a church that is so comfortable in our Sunday experience that we're not looking to, to grow and to, to keep up with the gospel message as it goes. Because the best way to become a declining church is to become stagnant and to think that all I need is Sunday and I don't need to show up on Monday. Or all I need to do is attend my Bible study on a Wednesday but not lead a prayer group on the Thursday. All I need to do is to pray that I'm going to experience what God has for me on a Sunday, but I'm not going to pray for my city and my area, and I'm not going to pray that my lost friends come to Jesus. I'm not going to pray that, that my children and my friends' children grow in their knowledge and understanding of God. I'm, I'm not meaning to, to speak down to you here. I'm, I'm just saying that if we get comfortable with coming and receiving, then we're positioning the church for decline. We need to try and keep up with the gospel message. And sometimes that looks messy. That's what's going on here. You get growth problems. In the last four years, to be honest, we've already been through a couple of these. But by God's grace, we are where we are. Let's keep going. So verse two, and the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, a lot of uh, people and you know, ministers in particular, when they take this passage, they take it as something that's a prescriptive, right? When you give a prescription, you say, here are your instructions, go and do it. Whereas uh, that's, a, that's not the right way to apply a text such as Acts, which is a narrative, right? It's a story because by nature, by genre, it's descriptive. It's describing what's happening. So the, the, the point of this text is it's not somebody writing to someone to say, this is the right way to do things. It's simply recording, somebody recording, well, this is what they did. And so I'm not going to go down that route of saying, well, here we have the right way to manage this church growth problem or to structure a church or to talk about the various words and what sort of offices and, and roles and, and jobs they mean. This is a descriptive text and so I think that we can take from it things that are good on principle but we need to contextualise and apply to what works in our situation. And so what are the good things 
that they do here? Well, I think that the first thing that is that the apostles recognise that their primary job is ministry of the word and prayer. That a church is actually not a church if it's not centred around the ministry of the word. And what that means is applying the word of God to where we are, to what our mission is, to what our lives look like. And that's something that God has placed on certain people with that capacity, with those gifts, and with that leaning. And usually it works out that uh, that is also the, the leadership uh, part of the church as well. And so some people will take this passage and they go, okay, well, the apostles are sort of delegating all of the, the pastoral responsibility. They're delegating the stuff that's practical, that it's actually caring for people. And I think, well, yes, that seems to be what ha- has happened in this time, but probably the, the, the better principle here is that they're staying within what they know God has gifted and called them to. Because chances are what God has gifted you with is where he wants you, where he wants you to be. And so the other thing is that they've not allowed the church structure to get in the way where they can't do both of these things well. Okay, because it's, I mean, we're just talking pragmatics here. In a smaller church, chances are the pastor is going to need to have a ministry of the word and pastoral care and probably a lot of other things because that's what the need is and that's the, the size of the group, the contributing group there. But as things grow, they're not able to do that. And so I find it interesting that the people approach the apostles and they kind of expect them, they they say, here's the problem, and they kind of expect them to solve it. I wonder whether they thought that the apostles were going to step in and actually start doing that themselves. I think that that would be a sound conclusion because the apostles say, well, look, it's actually not right for us to do that. It's not right for us to do this. And so what does that mean? Does that mean that pastoral care and those kind of things are less important than ministry of the word? Well, you might take it that way, but I think that by delegating that responsibility, the apostles are actually saying, this deserves more attention than we can actually give it. This deserves better oversight and better structure than we can give it, given that we know we have these responsibilities. And so a church should absolutely be there to meet the needs of people in the moment and also to understand, to develop, to apply, to pursue, to hear the word of God as well. And so I think that this delegation actually elevates that responsibility. Because notice the qualifications that they list for the kind of people who have to step into this job. I mean, this is a practical job. It's making sure that widows aren't getting overlooked in the distribution of food. And yet, the requirements are all spiritual, to be full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. And you know, the truth is that any place of service in the church is a place of spiritual service. It doesn't matter what you're doing, and you know that's an easy way to sort of like say, hey, you're doing something important. You're setting up the chairs, therefore you're doing something important. It's all spiritual. But it's true, because the church is about people, and anything that you do serving people requires that uh, spiritual qualification, that character to be there. And you know the other thing that I love about this is it lists Stephen first, And it says that he was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And we're going to look next week at Stephen, but uh, verse 8 of Acts 6 says, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among among the people. Right, This guy who was, you know, on car park duty, solving a practical need, was so full of faith and the Holy Spirit that people were getting healed. 
that demons were being cast out, that the gospel was being so powerfully presented and so uh, you, we'll see basically Stephen gets a whole chapter of his you know, preaching to the Jewish leaders. And that's not necessarily as, as an apostle. It's as somebody who was appointed to solve a practical need. Wouldn't it be awesome if we had people who were on the door, so full of the Holy Spirit, solving a practical need, and yet as people come in, they would pray and people would get healed. That suddenly a, a spirit of, of depression would be lifted off them as they walk through the door because of the faith and, and the, the spiritual uh, fervor of that person who's shaking their hands and welcoming them and greeting them. You see, I think one of the important things that we gain from this little story here is that we cannot assume that all of the ministry is to be done by the leadership. And can I actually tell you that that assumption is unbiblical? Because Paul says in Ephesians 4 that God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Not to do all of the ministry themselves, but to equip the saints, which is you, by the way, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So assuming that you, you come up, uh, you come to church and you, you give your tithe and, and that goes to whatever the church is doing, great church is doing ministry, I'm, I'm supporting. Whatever the staff want to do, like that's, that's their space. Well, actually, it's our job to equip you to do the works of ministry, which is why ministry of the word plays a central role because teaching and, and equipping and, and unfolding what is in scripture it's, is what's going to grow us into people who operate properly as the body of Christ and who find an area of ministry that we can serve in and contribute. And so I would love if God was working on that in your heart right now, stirring up some place that you would be able to, uh, to contribute and to serve, because at the end of the day, we're all serving the kingdom of God. Isn't that great? Now, the thing here is that this is a growth problem, and it is solved by people from the group stepping up. And so we are a growth church. That is what we are aiming for. And for us to get there, it's going to require people to step up. And when problems come, when issues of capacity, when that bottle is shaking and fizzing and the, the pressure is squeezing so hard, we need people to step up and to listen to the Holy Spirit saying, this is where I want you to be able to contribute. And the matter of making that decision is very similar to what I was saying earlier, that the, the prompting and the leading of the Holy Spirit leads you to a point where actually... It's more about giving in than it is about feeling obligated or doing the right thing. And so as the church grows, there are likely going to be people, many of whom are sitting in these seats right now, who are going to feel the call to step up and to do something, who are going to feel the call to step up and contribute into a team or, or even to run a group of their own or even to enter into ministry or, or to be a missionary overseas. Can I just say that that's a, that's a very easy line to pursue as a, as a preacher, and I think that often we end up kind of being in a space of guilt uh, that we're, we're not, you know, 
doing those things or, or we're worried, we're scared that God's going to call us to be a, a missionary. You know, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that a, a friend of mine, for her growing up, all of her f- friends were like, oh, I hope God doesn't send me to Afghanistan. That was the place like, that, you, that you didn't want to go. It's like, oh, I don't really want to be full on for God because he might send me to Afghanistan. Can I just release you of that burden at this moment? Because I think everybody at some point being in church feels like, oh, maybe I should be a pastor. Or maybe I should be a missionary. Can I just release you of that burden? Because God is not gonna call you to something that he's not equipped you to do. And chances are that if you're someone who is inclined in that direction, whom God has called to get there, that in combination with that reluctance, because you know we can be a bit reluctant, in combination with that reluctance, there is an underlying and growing sense of, actually, this is obedience. And if you don't have that sense, that's okay. Relax. God's not going to call you to something that he's not also going to give you the desire to do. But if that is you, and if you know that ministry is on your heart and that ministry is in your trajectory, then it's like a mosquito. As you're trying to go to sleep, it's going to be there. It's going to be buzzing around and you might be hunting for it and trying to find it, but it's not going to disappear. And often it's a slow burn. Often it takes a long time of God developing that sense of calling and that drive to actually get there for you. Not always. doesn't always work like that. So some very interesting implications from this passage. But I find verse 7 to be one of the most beautiful and stunning parts of this section. And we'll return. So verse 7 says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now notice two things about that. Firstly, specified priests. Previously, it's been people, men and women, have come and and joined the number. But here we have a specific naming of the priests. And I might add that the the wording in the original language is that it literally says, a great crowd of priests became obedient to the faith. And so I'm imagining that there is just suddenly this crowd of priests who all at one point have this beautiful conversion moment. And the second thing that I want you to notice is obedient to the faith is seemingly an odd way to express it. Right? The picture that we get from that kind of wording is not a matter of somebody weighing up in the scales the two options and then one's slightly heavier and so they decide to go with that one. It's not the picture of somebody at a fork in the road going, oh, okay, well, I've got to make one choice or the other. Well, let me go this way. It's not a picture of somebody walking through a grocery store and scanning the aisles for whatever suits their own taste and preference and deciding that that's the religion that's going to suit them. The picture is of somebody who comes to a sudden point of honesty with themselves and says, For me to resist this anymore is disobedience. For me to resist this anymore is actually going to be lying to myself. There's a point at which the call to faith is obedience. And if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, can I just say that you need to get on the winning team? Because 
As we've mentioned, as we've already discussed, Christianity has been growing. God has been blessing and pursuing and growing that thing since 2,000 years ago. And it's not slowing down and it's not stopping. And you're not allowed to say things like this anymore, but Christianity is the winning team. Do you believe that? Yeah. And so if you're somebody who doesn't know Jesus, I'm not here to present you with some fancy argument or or to plead with you other than to say the fact that at some point or another, you know that that growing sense, that reality means that actually faith is a step of obedience. You see, these priests, these priests were very similar to the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. They had roles and responsibilities in the Jewish faith. They were the people who um, were in the temple, who were facilitating the sacrifices. And so they were people who had very significant importance in that city. They were very well respected because the, the population was pretty much Jewish in that time. And they were also very close in relationship with the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They, were, they had friends in high places, and so they dressed in robes that indicated their importance on a spiritual level. They were well-educated, they knew all of the scriptures, and they had a fulfilling life in the temple. It's kind of like the person that's just going through the motions, they've committed to the path that the world sort of lays out for us. They've got a good job, They've gotten into the suburb that they're wanting to. They've, gotten, they've worked hard and they've gotten their children going to the school that they want them to go to. They're succeeding in their workplace. They've got respect. They're able to buy clothes that are not just decent, but they fit well. But then things start to change. For the last couple of months in the temple, attendance has been thinning out. The pews, so to speak, were getting less and less full. And the only people who were consistently coming in were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And each time they looked a little bit grumpier. And during their temple sacrifice, during their services, these Pharisees would grumble and they would turn around and look outside because there was a commotion going on outside. Some disciples were stirring people up with this new teaching and they were gaining more and more popularity and these Pharisees and these Sadducees would, would turn back and say to the priests, don't worry about that. We're sorting it out. We'll get rid of them. Don't you worry about that. You just stay close to us. And that commotion outside grows increasing, increasing, increasing in, in its volume and in the number of people who are coming in and the crazy things that are happening and the people who are getting healed. And then, and then, you have the words of Gamaliel, who says, if this thing is from God, we will not be able to stop it. And a great crowd of priests become obedient to the faith. I reckon they were standing there in the temple. And once they really understood what Gamaliel was saying, they all turned to each other and they said, what are we doing? Why are we here? God is not in this place. I'm living a fruitful life according to the values that I've inherited and the education that I've got, but God's not here. God's out there. And so in that moment, those priests take off their priestly robes. They leave them in a big pile on the floor. They abandon their education and everything that they've grown up and even their, their status as somebody who was a Levite and they go outside and they find the apostles and they sit 
at the feet of the apostles and they say, teach us about Jesus, please. We need to know. Because they've recognised that faith is actually a step of obedience. That for them to persist in their old way of life is actually them rejecting the truth. Anthony, you can come on up. We're nearly finished. And can I say that it's the same here for us tonight. If you're somebody who doesn't know Jesus, then at some point you've got to realise that faith is actually a step of obedience. That giving your life to Christ is about joining the winning team because he's leading us to a heavenly city where none of this matters. Where the wealth that you're accruing, the status that you're building, all of the achievements that you're getting, you can't take them with you. You actually can't. And so would you make that step of faith tonight? If that's you, I would love to to talk to you and and to pray with you. And and I'll be up the front here and I would love for you to just make your way during the music up the front. And I would love to talk you through that. But it's gonna be also the same if we're somebody who is feeling that inner call to, to contribute, to step up. And maybe it's even a call to ministry. There are some people here who are going to be called to a ministry of the Word and whose lives are set apart and given over to teaching and explaining God's Word. And if you feel like God is stirring that in you, then I would love to talk to you as well. It's not a journey that you want to walk in darkness and Liam would love to talk to you about that as well. But when our church starts to grow up, Are we going to step up? And in order to do that, we need to give up. So I'll just invite you to stand and we're going to pray. And if there's a way that you believe that um, God is prompting you to respond, then then you do that. The prayer team uh, will be available for prayer as well. And look, I would love uh, for the prayer team, if you're on the prayer team tonight, would you be able to just come down the front here? And if you... Uh, feel as though God's prompting you to respond, then uh, come to the front and and we would love to to pray with you. If you're somebody who maybe has that leaning in your heart, that growing mosquito of needing to be called to ministry, then would you come as well? And if you're somebody who needs to make that step of faith tonight and become obedient to the gospel message, then would you come as well? Let's all pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for the convincing nature of this story. And it's no secret that Christianity has been growing for 2,000 years and that that was not, the conditions were not ripe for that. It was opposed at every turn. Christians were persecuted and hated. They didn't succeed through the sword. They didn't succeed through compelling arguments. It was simply the gospel message and the power of your Holy Spirit. There's this beautiful moment in the previous chapter when Paul, uh, when sorry, when the disciples are talking with the Sanhedrin and they say, we are witnesses to this message as is the Holy Spirit. And God, you've been witnessing to your message for the last 2000 years. God, would you remind us of the stream that we flow in, of the river that we stand in, that's been coming for for all of creation. 
and is heading its way towards the moment when you come and when you are going to make a new heaven and a new earth. Would you help us to keep that perspective, Lord, that only eternity matters. And God, as a church, we seek to grow. We seek for your kingdom to be made more manifest here, for the presence of your spirit to come in measure that we've not seen or experienced before for us to have open hearts and soft hearts to the degree that we haven't before. And for your gospel message to get hot here and for the presence of your spirit to get hot so that like that popcorn, we start to pop out. God, help us to to see where the message is outrunning us and to follow it. And so God, as we as we come and as we ponder what you're doing in our hearts, would you give us the courage to respond as we worship now?